are attached, when our lives and our identities are wrapped up in other things, who we are and how we see the world becomes distorted and blurred. For example, I believe that we are become very easily attached and our identities wrapped up in our possessions. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. The modern West says, I shop and therefore I am. Or I choose or I have freedom and I have choice and therefore I exist because I have choice and so forth. There's lots of mantras we could give today, but through what we possess, through the things we own, our personhood is shaped in so many ways, whether it's the styles of clothes we wear and the personality that that eludes or the, the things we start to own as hobbies that now shape us, whether we're this person, the person who, you know, even our own diets become definitive of our personalities. But more than just possessions, our, our positions, like for me, the position of a pastor, but not just that, the practices that go with it. They can become definitive of who we think we are. And even people. Now you should be in relationship with people, but what I mean by this is how these other people operate to give you a sense of fulfillment. So rather than being someone who's in love with this person and serving, the people can become in our lives at commodities. They can become very much the source of how we then feel about ourselves. And so it's nothing wrong with having possessions or positions or people in your life. But when they become an attachment in a way in which you, who you are is now defined by these things, we run the risk of what Peter does, is want a Christianity without a cross. We can, instead of following Jesus, we can follow our feelings about Jesus. Peter gets rebuked by Jesus, bless you. He gets rebuked pretty harshly, it seems. And if you, if, if you know where we are in the Gospels, what has happened in Mark is that Jesus has been very careful not to let anyone really know who he is. He, whenever the demons cry out, you're the son of God, he quiets them and he, he keeps telling people to be quiet. Don't tell anybody what I'm doing. And then he asks his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? Some people think you're like Elijah, John the Baptist, this prophetic annoyance in the, in the culture who's pushing people. But who do you think I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah, the King, the Christ. And Jesus says, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, basically. But then in Mark, this in Matthew, who goes into more detail, but in Mark, instead of then describing how he names him Peter, because what follows from this revelation is Simon becomes Peter, a shift of identity. In Mark, it just goes straight into the definition of the Messiah. I will suffer and die and rise. And Peter is astounded. He is torn apart. He panics because everything he's just revealed that Jesus is the Christ did not, in his mind, was not going to be interpreted by suffering and death. The Messiah wasn't going to be crucified. What Peter does is he He's looking for a king without a cross. And in essence, he is channeling what Nietzsche would channel eventually centuries later, that the cross is the emblem, emblem of a curse against life. Nietzsche was fond of seeing Christianity and, as a slave morality that it valued weakness and it took what was best of human life and degraded it, held it back. 
And you can see this, the cross was a, is, is a symbol of Roman occupation, a symbol of the empire of which they were beholden to. It was a symbol of all that was wrong with the world. And the Messiah is not supposed to die on it. He's supposed to vanquish the enemies who would crucify them. And instead, Peter is hearing that this will be the very path that Jesus will go forward. And so he says, no, no, no. He pulls, he pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes him. It is still our temptation to join with Peter each day and to want a Christianity, to want a faith, a discipleship that has no cross. How do, what do I mean by this? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood this well. He said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That the first step of discipleship is a type of death. It is a cross that we bear. And the ways in which we resist this are often in our own culture through triumphalism. And what I mean by this is we want a Christianity that's powerful, that wins, that does not lose. And this is the temptation of every age to marry the cross with power, with the sword, with the economy, with coercion, a power rather that does not come from beneath and serves, but a power over. And this, in every generation, we risk this same temptation, the same temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness, which is the last time we heard Satan directly in the Gospel of Mark. And all of those temptations, once again, were to finish the ministry without the crucifixion, without the cross, without suffering. But the suffering of the cross is victory itself for us. Bonhoeffer knew this well. It's why he resisted German occupation during the Nazi regime during the Third Reich, which was another example of where Nietzsche's criticisms of Christianity were morphed into a Christianity that could accommodate Nazi Germany. But that might seem a bit abstract. Most of us are not so uh, inclined to marry power and the cross in our lives. But in other ways, maybe more personally, it's a, it's a Christianity without suffering. It's a Christianity where we, we make space between us and pain, where we avoid that. We see expressions of that in the prosperity gospel and other events in way which that uh, manifests itself. But even in a more an easy way, it means that we turn our heads away from pain and suffering. We become uncomfortable with the image of Christ crucified. We become uncomfortable with the news around us and we can only handle so much pain and despair, so we turn to numbing that. And it's easy to numb, to distract, whether it's entertainment, whether it's maintaining busyness, whether it's keeping our eyes away from the things that are so difficult here as we walk through the streets. Jesus on the cross, is offered some sour wine to help numb the pain, but he refuses it. You know, I'm not saying when you're in desperate pain, you should you know, avoid all painkillers. But there's a spiritual sense in which we can numb ourselves, anesthetize ourselves to the pain and the brokenness of our world, but it's exactly in those places of brokenness and pain that God is most present to us in our helplessness. And we need to stay alert and sober in those pains so that we might also bear with Jesus the kind of healing power that comes in that. 
what Bonhoeffer called a crossless Christianity. He called cheap grace. Grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace that was basically a subjective way in which you choose what will make and fit your life and increase and make your life better. And how much that temptation still is still present with us today to pick and choose what we want from the scriptures, but more importantly, to, to, to create a faith that works for you and I, that will accommodate your visions, your dreams, your best, your politics, your vision of justice, your vision of love, your vision of everything. This is, in essence, not to get behind Jesus, but to stand next to him, or in King, generally in front of him. Peter pulls Jesus aside, says, no, no, I will explain to you how this is supposed to go. This is cheap grace. But Jesus does not name Peter Satan. He's not saying you are Satan, you're possessed, as some people might have, might seem from the reading. What Jesus does is says the spirit of the accuser is working through you, and you're in the wrong place, so get behind me. In one sense, Jesus is saying, yes, I need to go to the cross. Do not get in the way of this, Peter. But in another sense, he's saying to, to Peter, this is where you belong, behind me, following me. And so instead of even saying to he doesn't even, he, he goes further than even saying it, he turns and puts Peter in his brightful place, where disciple belongs, behind their master. And he turns to the disciples and then gives them this challenge of picking up their own cross. In spite of appearances, Jesus is not shaming Peter. He's not putting him in his place in that sense. At his heart, this is mercy. When God turns from us, it is mercy, not so that he ignores us, but that we are in our right place in the shadow of our Messiah. God turns his back never on us to put us in that place, but only to help us find our place. You can try to follow Jesus from the side, and many will try to lead Jesus from the front, but only from behind Jesus can we follow. Early church Father Tertullian, who was saved by watching the martyrs in the Colosseum in North Africa, wrote that we must carry the cross after Christ, not before him, for, he is, for it is he who has prepared the way, and we must walk in his steps. He bore the cross that we might follow him. He was crucified that we might hang upon it. Now what Jesus did, none of us could do. He did what only the Son of God could do. But to each and every one of us, he invites us to carry our own cross, to imitate him in doing so, to be martyrs, to be witnesses, as the original Greek word martyr means, to be a witness. We are not called to stand on the sidelines just appreciating what Jesus did for us in the sacrifice today. We too are called into the fight to pick up our own cross, to endure our own suffering, Bonhoeffer would go on to say that each of us has a cross waiting for us. Each of us has to endure our own suffering rejection. Some have the grace for martyrdom. We live in an age where death is often pushed aside 
to back rooms and nursing homes and hospitals. It is rare for us to be confronted with it face to face. This is unique in, this, uh, in the great length of human history. We have banished death from our view. We have not escaped it. Many of us are still trying, technologically at least, and through every version of diet we can, can imagine. But it's still a reality we live with, even if we do not see it as often. And I think part of that that's contributed to that is, as Protestants is that we don't really think about the saints too often. We do not have a very clear picture of what it means to go from life to death, to eternal life. Another early church father, Ignatius of Antioch, who was martyred in 110 AD by the Romans. He was taken from Antioch to Rome and fed to the lions in the Colosseum. He was a disciple of John. As he is being taken from Antioch to Rome, he writes several letters to the churches that he was overseer of. And he tells them, basically in the quote that's above me, he tells them, don't impede my martyrdom. Don't stop it from happening. Don't get in the way. Allow me to live through death. In a sense, he says this, allow me to receive the pure light when I shall have arrived there. When I have arrived there, I will be a human being. Allow me to follow the example of the passion of my God. It's a bit strange language. But what Ignatius is in effect saying is, let me go to my death, and in my martyrdom, in my passion, I will be born again. I will be born truly human. And what Ignatius is, is giving us insight into, that Jesus then, you know, to go back on what Jesus is offering, is that when we lay down our lives, we do become more, not less. That self-denial means more, not less of who we are. That it brings us freedom from the attachments that corrupt us and confuse us and lessen who we are meant to be, that only in giving ourselves, only in laying down our lives, only in carrying the cross, do we become who we're supposed to be. Only then are we set free to live and be alive and be true. And only in dying to ourselves can we then really say at the slogan of our age, you're true to yourself. It's the great paradox of scripture. God shows us what it is to be God in the way that he dies, simultaneously revealing what it means to be human. The cross is where God is most God and most human. And in our own daily, we're supposed to daily die to ourselves, there in that we reclaim our humanity and are taught to live fully. It might seem, as we talk about Lent and this, Jesus then implores his disciples that if you want to save your life, you must lose it. You must deny yourself and pick up your cross. That all of this sounds very sad and depressing and that it's all about taking from you and, and you know, uh, this idea that is often characterized with Christianity, it's just a wet blanket trying to take away fun and ruin your life. Basically Nietzsche's criticisms. You know? But God does not take anything good from us what is, or keep anything from us. As Paul said, he did not spare his own son. What good gift would he not give us? But what is happening in our imitation of the cross is that all that is lost, all that we're losing, is truly what we need to 
have removed so that we might be free. Free of everything false, free of everything vicious, free of everything cruel and diseased. The truth hurts as we're confronted by it, but it never harms. It is harmful because it reveals what needs to be healed. And so we are, as we are invited to follow Jesus, to get behind him and pick up our cross, we are not being here to, to destroy ourselves, but to become ourselves. The greatest example of this is Peter. Peter is the model disciple in the book of Mark, which is a bit ironic considering Peter just never gets it right. Right? He's the one who gets rebuked as Satan. He's the one who, right after this, will say, let's hang out on the Mount of the Transfiguration. He's the one who will say, I will follow you to your death, and then denies Jesus three times. But it's after Jesus rises from the dead in, in Mark that Jesus says to Peter, and says to the women, go and meet me in Galilee, and tell them and Peter. And Peter shows up, and Peter's there in Galilee. And what's important as us today is Lenten people who have failed over and over, who are in need of God's mercy, that like Peter, we have often dropped the ball. The important thing is that we show up and be with Jesus. And every time we try to get on his side or try to go in front, that we remember that he wants us behind him so that we might follow in his steps. And therefore, in his shadow is the grace and the courage to pick up the cross and become who we're meant to be. This is our Lenten invitation today. It's not to stand in front of the cross, but to stand behind Jesus who bears it. And only then can we pick up our own and follow him. So take courage. I take joy that we are not alone, that you are not the pioneer of your faith or the author of the path. God is with us. God is for us. God is not against us. He's placed us behind him, not to leave us behind, but to be the one who, who is our shield and our fortress, our guide and our shepherd. Whatever, there might be some things this Lenten season the Lord is asking you to lay aside, things that are keeping you from being behind the Lord and more so trying to navigate from the side or from the front. And I encourage you that you do not need to fear letting go of those things, whether they be possessions or positions or whatever else you can fit in. That starts with P. But more importantly, know that you're not losing anything that sometimes less is more. I say all this to your name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you take a few moments and let's just pause and I'll give you a chance to respond to the Lord in prayer. And if there's anything that from the readings or the sermon or in prayer that God has placed on your heart, I invite you to share that in prayer.